Hey guys, before we get started today, I just wanted to let you know if you're looking for more football content, of course, who isn't, then I would strongly recommend the Adam Schefter podcast. Recent guests include Robert Sala, Frank Gore, and Trevor Lawrence. You can find the Adam Schefter podcast wherever you get your pods. Welcome to the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, the only NFL podcast where one of the hosts hears the name Heineke and thinks, I'd like to sniff that. That's Lenny. I'm Mina Kimes, and that amused chuckle, generous really, that you heard in the background, belongs to one Bill Barnwell. You've heard him on my show many times, and of course, the Bill Barnwell Show. Bill, how's it going? <laughs> Still can't get past that. The Heineke joke? Yeah. Did did you just come up with that? Did you write that down on the flight uh, crystal? I wrote it down 15 minutes ago and uh I was I was pretty happy. Just, know, just yeah. frantically walking across ESPN's campus and suddenly the like the, the light bulb goes off and you're like, I have to find a piece of paper <laughs> running around the campus trying to find. Uh, so I am still um in Bristol and it is really cold. You said before we started, what what was your exact wording? Okay, I said if I was involved with a draft where I had to pick people who moved to LA and then suddenly got cold every time they went back to the East Coast, my first overall pick in that draft would be Mina Kimes. If I was an NFL head coaching candidate, like a hot name, like mm-hmm. a Sala or Dable, and I was given the choice between Jackson, well, mm, it's just let me not isolate, just somewhere warm and somewhere cold, that would factor in almost as much as like who's playing quarterback. Okay, but if any place on the planet has access to enormous warm coats, it's an NFL sideline. That's true. That's true. God, I've always wanted one of those. Like the infamous Brady one. You should be able to get like a 6XL coat from that has like the Jaguar logo on it. That's when you know you made it. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, we're about to see many of those coats. Yeah, I mean, Green Bay, What I don't know what the temperature is. That's actually relevant. We'll get to that um, at the top of the show because we're going to talk about the divisional round. We're going to talk a little bit about Doug Peterson. I've got questions for you as always. I figured, Bill, we would go in chronological order by schedule. Uh, before we get started, I, I asked Dominique to do this last week. Rank the divisional games in order of sexiest to least sexy. Ooh. Did Dominique pick correctly? Like, was he accurate? Oh, did it bear of- out? Yeah. Um, interesting. I want to gauge Dominique's uh, insight into what's. You know what? We kind of did because we thought Ravens Titans would be really sexy. I think Bills Colts was. We thought that would be deeply unsexy, and actually, it ended up being pretty, pretty cool. It sounds like you guys were wrong. I mean, Bills Colts was great, but Ravens Titans was great too. Mm. Wow. Mm. Okay. Well, maybe I was working it, so I was like extra invested. Maybe. I think we were we definitely did not look forward to Bear Saints and we were correct to That's fair. Know, be excited about that. That's so this week we've got I'll just kind of, you know, Please. in order, um, unless I'm incorrect, it goes Rams, Packers, mm-hmm. Ravens, Bills, Browns, Chiefs, mm-hmm. and then the grand finale, Bucks, Saints. Okay. So I think we probably agree on what's number one, which is Ravens, Bills. Yes, that is. I'm most excited about that game. Okay, I think they're I'm, all good actually. By the way, there's no, there's not a dud in the bunch. They're all good in their own strange way. I, I would say Ravens Bills. I would say Saints Bucks is number two. Yes, I agree. And then I would say Browns Chiefs, and then Packers Rams last. I think that's fair. Uh, we're we're going to go 
Rams-Packers first. I mean, Rams-Packers is a really interesting one because one side of the ball, one matchup is Mm -hmm. very sexy. Yes. Um, I'm going to stop saying sexy. I've said it like 20 (laughs) times and now I'm a little, I've made myself uncomfortable. Um, But that, of course, is the Packers offense against the Rams defense, which just um, stomped my Seahawks. And I will get to that at some point after, you know, we're, we're focused on the winners we're, we're on to the green bay um there's a lot to talk about there but i think i i sent you a message about this people were surprised by the outcome probably because they you know i think there was some awareness of how much the seahawks had struggled second half of the season the offense but i also think the rams defense until the very end of the nfl season people weren't aware of how good they were so let's start off the bat and focus on this particular matchup, do you think the Rams defense is the best in the NFL? Um, it might be the best left in the playoffs. I think I would have said the Steelers, especially when everybody was healthy. Yeah. So number one. Although obviously they looked like garbage. You you'd say maybe last week against the Browns. I mean, they looked terrible. That seems fair. Yeah. Even when some of those guys yeah. back. <laughs> right. I mean, the Rams were fourth in DVOA uh, on defense, and it was pretty close. Like the top four teams, really the top five teams. Uh, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, Washington, Rams, and Tampa were all kind of in the same boat. Um, I think the Rams are, they can be the best defense in football when they have the right matchup. And I think the Seahawks were the perfect matchup for the Rams in terms of like what the Rams do well and what the Seahawks do poorly. The Rams are a great team at taking away big plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, I believe, in DVOA against 25-plus air yard passes. Um, they were the uh, a great defense in terms of getting uh, interior pressure with Aaron Donald. I mean, as we saw in the second half of that game, even without Aaron Donald, and they pressured Russell Wilson, I think, in even 50% of the time uh, in that game. They tackle well. They create takeaways. They are a a very effective, very sound defense. And they have, of course, two larger-than-life, possibly best players at their respective positions in football in Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. And I think that last week, Aaron Donald mattered maybe more than Jalen Ramsey, even though it didn't turn out to be that way because they still got a ton of pressure even when Donald was out. They're going to need Donald to play in this game and play well in this game. But I think this is a matchup, given the Packers' offense, where it seems like Jalen Ramsey might matter more than Aaron Donald or anybody else in this game when it comes to giving the Rams a possibility of winning. Yeah, so Ramsey versus Devontae Adams, I think it feels like two heavyweights who have been circling each other from afar for, for a while. Have they ever? I don't think they've ever faced off. Um, I will look yeah. it up while I talk. But okay, I I'm pretty sure that they haven't. So. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, right? So I agree with your analysis about why the Rams defense, in particular their pass defense, why they match up so well with Seattle. Um, but Green Bay, while Devontae Adams is a there, I, there are nights where when I'm watching Devontae Adams, I don't know how anyone stops him. Like I, I believe he is the best wide receiver in the NFL right now, um, and. It, so you the of course narrative around Green Bay has always been well there's no there's no one behind Adams you know this mm-hmm. was of course you know coming out of the draft the big criticism of the Green Bay front office and while that's true there are games where Devonte Adams as as good as he is even when he's taken out the Packers have other options whether it's a big Bob Tanyan throw into Aaron Jones 
Alan Lazard hasn't really looked the same since coming back from injury. So I, let me ask you this. Like if Ramsey's able to take Adams out of the game, do you see the Packers offense being dramatically slowed? I need to think about that. So I'm going to ask you a question while I think about that. Mm. Question, which is, has any NFL player felt so right with a nickname and adopted that nickname so quickly as Robert Tanyan became Big Bob Tanyan? <laughs> I actually honestly forgot his name was Robert Tanyan. I just think of him as Big Bob Tanyan now. And while I I didn't win in fantasy um, this year, I lost. I was felled by our mutual friend, Danny Kelly, who then was felled in the championship. I did pick up Big Bob. We're in a dynasty league. We have a zillion players. I did pick up Robert Tanyan, and I basically feel like Bill Belichick for having done so um, on the waivers. So I... I actually, I want you to answer my question, but I also want to throw in a, a loop, throw you in, throw you for a loop, but in, of course, I've thrown myself for a loop verbally. Um, so I was looking for weaknesses in the Rams defense, like just kind of combing through the statistics, knowing what we know about the things they're good at when you watch them. And something that surprised me a little bit, Bill, but I think some of this has to do with the competition they face. They actually rank 24th in QBR versus the play action pass, 22nd in yards per attempt versus play action, and last in the NFL in the average separation allowed to receivers. Wow. Now, I think, you know, they play in the NFC West, teams use a lot of play action, then they had that game against the Bills. But still, what are the Green Bay Packers insanely good at? Play action. Ah, that's a lot of play action, unfortunately. Um, okay. I feel like I have to get back to several things we talked about. Very briefly, Devontae <laughs> Adams did play against Jalen Ramsey in Jalen Ramsey's first NFL game, Jaguars Ooh. Packers in 2016. Jalen Ramsey was a slot corner that week. He was not the uh, an outside corner. He started his career in the slot full-time and then moved inside-outside pretty quickly. Devontae Adams caught a touchdown in that game, but it was against Devon House, uh, former and future Packer. Devon House. So I don't think they matched up very much even when they were in that game together. Um, okay, what was the question you asked me? <laughs> I was just saying, if, if Ramsey takes out oh, yeah, Adams, okay, yes. how do you see it playing out? For yes. I mean, we saw earlier this year, right? The Packers did not have Devontae Adams for two or three games. Mm-hmm. And they did just fine. Like, yeah. Aaron Rodgers still found open receivers. Um, I, I think this offense, you know, having Devontae Adams helps so much, sort of in the same way that, that having Stephon Diggs helps Josh Allen, where I think when they have a mismatch with Adams, it's going to work so often and going to create so many easy completions for Rodgers. But this offense does manufacture, I, I would say for the Packers, more open receivers for big plays than any other offense in football in terms of just week after week, whether it's Adams, whether it's Valdez Scantling, whether it's Tanyan. I mean, especially even in the red zone, where do you figure there's not going to be open spaces? Just time after time after time, it's the combination of their play calling, it's the combination of play action, and the combination of Rodgers' eyes just, uh, you know, creating all these opportunities for wide open receivers. And, you know, when it comes to the stats you brought up about receiver separation and about performance versus play action, this is a busy defense for the Rams. Yes, that's so important. They're going to spend their safeties, they're going to rotate, they want to confuse you. And I think that's going to work, but it's also going to give the opportunity to have open receivers, especially in the intermediate mm-hmm. range. Like they're they're safe, I would say. You know, like they are very protective of of giving up those big plays. If they're going to take a risk, it's usually going to be about, you know, trying to take to force you into a deeper throw that they don't think you can hit. But I do think that 
they're willing to cede some completions. And so for this game, it's almost going to be like the 2019 version of Aaron Rodgers, where it's like he had those safeties he throws, and sometimes he just didn't want to make them. I think he's made them more in 2020, and I wonder if he's going to keep doing that against this Rams defense, and if he'll have enough time for the Rams to do that, because I think the other thing you have to talk about on the side of the ball is David Bakhtiari. So that's where I wanted to go next, because you, I think you're absolutely right that this is going to be more about Jalen Ramsey than Aaron Donald, who absolutely took over the Seahawks game. Like, if there's what I know we're all... There's so much fretting in Seahawks land, and deservedly so, but, like, the takeaway from that game, for me, I mean, Aaron Donald is the best player in the NFL not named Patrick Mahomes, and he was better than Patrick Mahomes this year. And um, mm. <laughs> what? Mm. You know I'm right. He should be the defensive player of the year. If, yeah. yeah, okay. We don't have to have that debate. But um, the Packers' offensive line, which has been so fantastic all season, their weakness is at the tackle position. In particular, they lost, you know, their all-world all left tackle, David Bakhtiari. I say all-world when I don't know if a guy was all-pro, just kind of as a cover-up. So anyways, the strength of that offensive line now is the interior. So if I'm the Rams, and they do this all the time with Donald anyways, like he rushes from every position, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm moving him outside, wide nine, you know, playing a ton of games up front and trying to queue up matchups to get, AD, you know, put him on one of the backups. Yeah, I mean, Billy Turner is their utility tackle. He started the week 17 at left tackle, I believe, for the Packers in that matchup. And I mean, he is someone I'm not a very big fan of. I think he's been better than I would have expected. But he's still like, you don't want him as your starting left tackle, if I'm being honest with you. And to your point, not only Aaron Donald, pretty much everybody on this defense outside of maybe Leonard Floyd. Leonard Floyd is almost always on the left side of the defense against the right tackle. But otherwise, everyone else pretty much moves around and you could see any different level of, um, you know, a, a, sort of a, any different array of linemen or rushers on that side. I do think you're going to see Aaron Donald, you know, matched up against Billy Turner, whether it be on twist, whether it be lining up outside, whether it be about, you know, shifting the line. So you have a, a one-on-one matchup on that side. I think there's ways to make that happen. And I, I think the Rams would be foolish not to. I mean, maybe Billy Turner has a great game. And if that happens, great. Like, you know, you earned it. But I, I think the only way to stop the Packers is with pressure. And right now, your best chance of getting pressure on the Packers is by going at left tackle and seeing what you can come up with. If he has a good game, he becomes big Billy Turner. <laughs> That's how it works in Green Bay. Um, on the other side of the football, so Jared Goff, a his thumb he had full full practice today so you know he i guess that means his thumb has shrunk to a normal human thumb size um i can hear the skepticism in your voice here as you lead into this listen i okay i <laughs> i'm not saying it's unwarranted to be clear so this is um the less interesting side of of this game uh what do you think is, for the Rams is the best game plan against this Packers defense? That's been, I, I would say, middling. Middling with the, the Packers defense is interesting because there's some like really, really good players throughout, but they're thoroughly inconsistent. Okay. So let me go back to last week first. Because I think this, keep trying to talk about last week. That's old of, news, Bill. That's the answering, We're moving on. We're fo- this is not a Seahawks podcast. Not about the Seahawks. Not even going to talk about how bad their defense was against the Rams last week. Not necessary. What I'm going to ask you is about about how the Rams handled their quarterback situation, right? Because they came into that game with John Wolford as their starter and Jared Goff as the only backup. 
Mm-hmm. And we know John Wofford got hurt. Jared Goff came in. He was inconsistent. But the fact that they started with Wofford and the fact that Goff was healthy enough to be the only backup, their only line of resort in a playoff game, but also not healthy enough to be the starter. What does that tell you about how Sean McVay feels about his quarterbacks? And what does it tell you about what they're going to do on Sunday? There, I, so Wolford, her, so he hurt his neck in the Seahawks game and he didn't practice. So that's why I'm, I'm assuming it's Goff. I agree with you, Bill. It would be, if, if John Wolford was healthy, I do think this would be a conversation, but um, at this point, he doesn't look like he is. Maybe I'm wrong. So, so suggest, do you think if it's, we get to this weekend that Jared Goff is the starter and no matter how poorly he plays is the only option. Like, do you think there's any chance we would see Blake Bortles in this game? If, if Goff just looked like he couldn't throw. No, because Bortles is terrible. But big Blake Bortles. They didn't even bring up back as a backup. But you just call him big Blake Bortles. <laughs> he did not. He has not earned that title. And you know that, you know, a man who is far from big, John Wolford, has True. captured my heart. Little, little John, little John. Like, <laughs> we'll talk about little Jordan Humphrey later, but little John. Um, I mean, I, I, I think he would have been better in this game for this Rams offense because I think that no matter what happens, whether, oh, totally. it's Goff, whether it's Goff, whether it's Wolford, I'm assuming it'll be Goff as well. Like the reason the Rams won that game last week was not Jared Goff; it was the defense, right. and then it was Cam Akers, who I, I have to admit. I don't like saying NFL teams are lying. I have never seen a player look so good two weeks after coming back from a high ankle sprain as Cam Akers looked against the Seahawks. And he, the last week, he didn't look good at all. So he looked super unhealthy um, in Wolford's first start and Mm. did not have success running the football, but he looked excellent. And, and I mean, you know, he he was running through some pretty big holes. That's fair. <laughs> but, um, I mean, getting Whitworth back is enormous. Yes. So yeah. many of his runs were to the left side of the offensive line. And, and this is a Packers defense that we know struggles to has consistently year after year struggled to stop the run. And yeah. to get to that point, we talked about Aaron Donald moving him around. We know the Packers are going to move Sidarius Smith around to attack the weakest point Absolutely. on that line. So I think if you're the Rams – like you need your interior lineman to have a big game because if their Packers are getting Zedaria Smith up the middle against Jared Goff with nine and a half fingers, like you're not getting the ball out. You're In screwed. 32 degrees, which um, Jared Goff, I think he's only played two games in freezing temperatures and they've both been real bad. Well, One the, was against the really good Bears defense. Oh, the, that, that 2018. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I know that was, that was a tough scene. I feel like that was, that defense was good. And that was also like, was that the first game where they figured out the offense? The the Lions game was the Lions way before. And then the Bears actually did it with good personnel and a good coach. So let's wrap. Sounds like you're leaning Packers. I, hmm, hmm. The thing is, like, I have to pick an upset at some point, right? Like, I can't just pick all the favorites to win. And I think the Rams might be, well, I don't know. I'm going to say Packers, but I think. I think Packers because I'm just not sure how healthy Aaron Donald is and how healthy the quarterback situation is for the Rams. Yeah, I think yards are going to be hard to come by for the Rams offense. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I think the that Lafleur will figure it out. That that the play action stuff really, I agree, is sticking with me. So now, um, you're a you're a mega caster, if I'm not mistaken. I am a mega caster. 
how much would you pay for a mega cast that was mic'd up Jalen Ramsey? Oh my god! Versus mic'd up Devontae Adams with just the camera on them, play after play. Devontae Adams, he's not like a trash talker though, right? You know how like sometimes you don't hear about people as trash talkers, then you get them for like one week well, and they're just. You know, my favorite moment in, in recent NFL history, of course, was when Jalen Brown, or Jalen Brown, geez, uh, Jalen Ramsey trash talked AJ Green to the point where AJ Green tried to choke slam him. <laughs> and like AJ Green is like the most soft spoken person on earth. So we know Ramsey's ability to get inside the head of uh, number one wide receiver. Can I ask you another question and then we'll move on to the next game? I yeah. This is not even related to this game. But, <laughs> but how much would you have to pay for five yeah. minutes? I am. I'm just taking over as host, apparently. How much would you need to earn for five minutes of CJ Gardner Johnson just insulting you? And you can't. What? Okay. Someone give that man a roast show because for those who don't know, CJ Gardner Johnson, uh, the cornerback for the New Orleans Saints, has now not only caused two opponents to punch him, he also caused Michael Thomas, right, to punch him or slap him or something. Mm -hmm. Like, what is he saying? I mean, I'm almost scared to, uh, you know, get behind him and be a supporter because it must be so insanely provocative. Two um, bears, two guys on the same team. Javon yeah, this year. And then like Anthony Miller came into the game and he's like, we're not going to do anything. We're calm. And then he still punched him. What an incredibly underrated skill, by the way. Like, imagine if you could be like, we want to take this person out of the game Oh, we've got this guy who it's like a, we have, you know, you, like if you're going to look at his strengths and weaknesses, you're like, OK, he's like shifty, fluid hips, the best troll in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, I, I that's such a brilliant idea for a concept for a show. All right. Ravens bills. OK. Sexiest you, game. Yes. Sexiest game. Week. Did you see what Josh <laughs> Allen said about this game? Oh, no. What did he say? He said he watched the tape of the last time these two teams played, and it was tough to watch. That was the, uh, the most Josh Allen I have ever had in common, because that's how I feel whenever I watch myself as well. <laughs> Josh um, Allen, 17 of 39 for 146. What week was this game. again? This was like week 11 last year. It was so, right. It yeah. was, I think, like one of the first games after they got Jalen, or after they got Jalen, after they got Marcus Peters, because Marcus Peters tipped away the game. What would have been the game-winning touchdown? Candidly, I feel that Josh Allen is has so radically transformed <laughs> as, as a quarterback that I don't really feel like it's relevant. I agree, hundred percent. Like I, I was as, when doing my prep for this game, I was like, do I want to go and watch? I have a take for you. I think the more relevant game for this game in terms of thinking about the Ravens and how they match up with Buffalo is Ravens Chiefs from this year as, as a downside scenario for the Ravens. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, Love it when you agree. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Last game for the Ravens against Tennessee, they pretty much lined up Marlon Humphrey against A.J. Brown. They were comfortable with that matchup, moving Humphrey in and out of the slot. Wherever A.J. Brown went, Marlon Humphrey was willing to go. And that didn't work for a drive. That didn't work for a touchdown drive early in the game. But after that, it kind of seemed like it did the trick. Like, he wasn't on them every single snap. But yeah, they, were, they started moving. Yeah. yeah. But it was their plan, clearly, coming into the game was, we think Marlon Humphrey can do this. Do you do the same thing with Marlon Humphrey against Stephon Diggs? So I think you do because, first of all, Stephon Diggs and A.J. Brown are like such different players. Like mm-hmm. um, A.J. was just kind of able to outmuscle Humphrey, yeah. which is A.J. Brown is maybe the most muscular wide receiver I've ever seen. He's not even um, the most muscular wide receiver from his own college team. I know. I, yeah, 
Again, I'm just trying to block out all things Seahawks related. Anyways, um, so I, I think with Diggs putting him on, like putting him on Peters is almost too much of a liability, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, I just think he'll barbecue chicken Peters. Um, to me, with the Bills, like so, if we're, we're talking Ravens defense versus the Bills offense, yeah. it's all about what the Ravens can do up front. Mm. And what I wanted to ask you, Bill, mm-hmm. is how they should approach that. And that's why I think the Chiefs game is really relevant because against, in the, you know, that was a Monday night game and everyone was super excited and then the Chiefs just toasted them in part because the Ravens blitzed Patrick Mahomes like crazy and he just destroyed them. So Josh Allen, we know, has been absolutely devastating against the Blitz mm-hmm. all year. But he was devastating against Indianapolis. Hold on, I pulled his numbers from this particular game okay so yeah he was versus the winning he blitzed him he averaged 13 and a half yards per attempt with a 98.5 qbr without 8.1 uh 73.7 some of that's because he had some of those insane down the sideline throws but the the, all season long he's been second in qbr against the blitz Mm -hmm. um so now now the ravens are a much different defense they're about about as different from the Colts defense as you can get Mm -hmm. but one thing I found interesting in the Titans game was they didn't blitz Tannehill actually as much as I expected Mm -hmm. they played some games up front used some sim they had success with simulated pressures and when they didn't blitz him um and then they also had had success just sending four and so I was watching that and thinking like oh maybe Against Buffalo, we might see more of this approach, less of what we saw against the Chiefs. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. I, I think that if we see another Ravens-Chiefs matchup, I don't think we'll see the same defense. They've blitzed like 40-plus percent three times. Stop. They've been burned three times. It's not going to happen. But with Ravens-Bills, I, I I don't think blitzing works a ton. Because number one, Josh Allen's super mobile. And he's yeah. probably going to be able to either outrun the people who are blitzing or outmuscle them if it's a cornerback or a safety. Um, I don't think you really want to spy him. I, I think it's more about it, it might be less about the pressure, like the, the number of people you bring, and more just what you do to prevent him from doing the things he does to escape that pressure. And I think 100%. I think last game. The reason the Ravens won that game was not Lamar Jackson, even though he played, he had some incredible runs. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the pass defense. It was because the guys on the edge for the Ravens, Glaze Campbell, Pernell McVie, especially Pernell McVie, was awesome. Jihad Ward, Justin Matty BK on the interior, Brandon Williams on the interior. Those guys did an You're incredible job. against the Titans. You're talking about right. the, okay, yeah. Yes, against Tennessee. Um, did a great job of pushing the Tennessee tackles and the Tennessee tight ends backwards and cut off the you know the pass to escape for outside zone for mm-hmm. Derrick Henry to stop his feet. And at that point, the Ravens are winning if you can get Derrick Henry to stop your feet. And I think with Allen, it's not exactly the same because he's not always trying to escape like a loop around the edge the way that Derrick Henry might be. But I, I think you have to be you have to give him some pause when he wants to get outside the pocket. Everyone's talked about how good he is escaping to his right and making plays. We've seen him make plays to his left as well, to be honest. But I I do think it has to be a thing where, and the Patriots were especially good at this um, in 2019 with Allen, of of not not keeping him in the pocket solely because he's not going to make plays there because he can make plays in the pocket now. But I think more just that he's so valuable and so productive 
when plays break down. And I think you want him almost to stay in the scheme. You want him to stay within that, like, you know, what they're calling, what they're doing, and then try and defend their receivers downfield. And if you can do that, I think you're going to have a shot. But, you know, I, I think this has to be a game where they really do a good job of, you know, as a team trying to keep Josh Allen in the places they want to keep him. And then I think it has to be a big game from Yannick Ngakwe and Matt Judon. Yeah, well, the, what you're describing, like the Colts did a good job of that until the end of the first half. I mean, the Colts were like they were like winning the game um, until he made that like crazy the, the two uh, contested catches down the sideline and then the jump or whatever. But through much of the first half, without blitzing, uh, they were able to confuse Allen. They were able to get some free rushers, but for the most part he was staying in the pocket and mm-hmm. having to take what's available to him underneath or get the ball out quicker than he likes. And Right. It, and I think that worked. Yes, it worked. I, not only did it work, but I think one of the reasons it worked is because the rate or sorry, the Colts had excellent field position. And so yeah. if you if you do that, if you can keep those big plays off the field, if you can keep him from scrambling for 30 yards or picking up a 20-yard chunk play, you know, two or three times on a drive like he did on that drive at the end of the first half you're eventually going to win. Like you're not going to win on the first series, maybe not even on the second series, but if he has to get six first downs or seven first downs to get in scoring range, you are probably going to stop him on one of those series. Let me ask you this. You, you talked about sort of the notion of, you know, spying or whatever. Look, Josh Allen's like man zone splits aren't that dramatic because he's so good against both, but he also killed the Colts in the second half with his legs. If you're the Ravens notoriously man heavy, Defense. He played a lot uh, of man in particular against Tannehill, mm-hmm. um, but they were able to contain him up front. Like, do you do you divert from that approach at all? I think he makes it up. Like, I I don't think there's one solution. Like, I think if you show man every down, he's going to scramble and beat you. And if you show zone every down, like he's going to sit there and pick people apart. Like, I think it really like you have to have guys who not just pressure him in the pocket, but pressure him moving outside the pocket, pressure him to the sidelines and pressure him into an incompletion or a short scramble. And the Ravens have the athletes do that, but the Ravens are not always a great tackling team, especially Patrick Queen, their their rookie middle linebacker, who's very good, who has a very promising future, but misses a ton of tackles. And so I think you can mix it up and I think you can play band and have it work, but you have to have your athletes make plays. So, yeah, Queen is also a liability in coverage. Also a liability in coverage um, is Matt Milano. And I think on the other side of the football, the Ravens actually, they do match up well with Buffalo. their offense versus Buffalo's defense is a good matchup for them. Now, the Bills defense, you know, they improved as the season went along. And through the first three quarters of the Colts game, did a pretty good job of stopping the run. But in the fourth quarter, both Jonathan Taylor and Naheem Hines were just exploding. But on top of that, I think they're pretty soft in the middle against tight ends in particular, which, oh, by the way, happens to be like the only position that Lamar Jackson consistently enjoys throwing to. So while I, I don't think like this is good, a good game for Hollywood Brown, obviously against Tredavious white, I could see, I think, Oh, actually let's, let me, let's, go there do you think there's any chance they put white on andrews or try to mix it up no i don't think so yeah that's really their game i think that i don't i I will say this much i think hollywood brown is kind of having a little bit of a renaissance here like i think i asked someone who had him on both my fantasy teams wrote him off somewhere around week 10 
um, just out of sheer frustration. But he's been pretty good in December and had a big game last week. So he was reliable last week on those just like short and intermediate outs. You know, I think the the Ravens as the game wore on, they initially tried to attack the middle. It didn't work, and so they attacked the flats. They attacked the sidelines and trusted Brown to make plays. Um, The Bills are better on the edges, I think, for sure than the the Titans were. Yeah. Um. I think I would keep Tredavious on one side. Like, I, I don't think they're going to move him around a ton. I think that he can run with Marquise Brown. I think if they get Marquise Brown versus Josh Norman, if that if Josh Norman's playing in this game, I think that would be what we call a victory. And I would try and, and run Josh Norman very deep and see if I can get a pass interference call. Um, yeah. I think Levi Wallace, even though Levi Wallace is, you know, a... Oh, he got, he got baptized by uh, the rookie in the Colts game a few times. Pittman. Uh, Pittman. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. You know, I I think you you want to try and find the none Tredavious White mismatches, but I yeah. do think that it, the Bills are going to trust their linebackers and their safeties. So, and the safeties are very good. Like the linebackers are maybe, oh, yeah. especially uh, Milano, but I think they're, you know, the Bills' safeties are very sound. And the Bill, the, so let me actually get into what I think is the biggest part of this game. So I think it, it, the safeties play a huge part in that as well. Hmm. So last year, and this is, I'm stealing this from Paul Alexander, uh, the former offensive line coach who's um clinic on the Ravens rushing attack was really helpful. So last year the Bills were the best team all season when it came to slowing down the Ravens offense. And one of the things they did is that the Ravens last year was they would use motion to outflank a defense. So typically when a team brings a tight end or a fullback or a wide receiver in motion, once that person passes the center, the defense will adjust. They'll either, you know, shift a linebacker out or they'll shift somebody out. Um, to account for that. And because the Ravens were moving someone at the snap, they were moving them faster than that person who had to adjust. And so they were getting basically a numbers advantage on the strong side when they ran the ball at Jackson or when they ran the ball with one of their blocker or with one of their running backs because um, that adjustment wouldn't happen quickly enough. The, the, uh, like the Ravens would get the advantage before the other team could adjust. What the Bills did to account for that was when the Ravens would start motioning, mm-hmm. The Bills would just adjust immediately. They wouldn't wait for the guy to cross the center. So they were quicker to the ball, and that actually did stop the Ravens. Now, the Ravens had some solutions for that, but their running game is different than it was a year ago. Yes. The Ravens run more bash. They run more counter. They ran more wineback. They had that big play on wineback where uh, you had Gus Edwards blocking downfield for Lamar Jackson. Um, Their run game is different. It's not as good as it was a year ago, but it is more versatile. I think they have more things to show. And so I wonder... For the Bills, like they were spurned enough to come up with that adjustment and implement it on the fly. Like, I want to see what the Bills' adjustment is to more counter or more misdirection because yeah. the Ravens really were, they weren't really a heavy misdirection team last year. They were kind of able to do whatever they wanted. And I, I want to see what counters the Ravens have to whatever the Bills are doing to try and cheat to gain those advantages on defense. It seemed to me like the Titans' adjustment to what you're describing, like the, the Ravens run game right now, was to use the outside linebackers to set a very hard edge and just stop all of those off-tackle runs that result, right? Um, which worked through a lot of the first half. Like Lamar Jackson was getting stuffed on the zone reads, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when he would QB counter and all that stuff. Um, and then they started punishing them by, you, you mentioned they were targeting the flats. Like that didn't really start working for the Raven or they didn't even really try until halfway through the football game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, like the Bills say, okay, well, if we can contain them at the edges, do we have the speed to then 
tackle a guy in the flat if they counter the way they did against Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the I Bills are a great defense. <laughs> like, 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 I, I think the Bills, it's not just that like they don't have like those like super, super athletes in some cases. No. They, ha- they, have a, they have some great athletes, but they're not like like the, you know, they're not like the freak defense that you mentioned. But they work so well as a unit. They work so well as a team. They communicate really well. They don't blow a lot of assignments. And I think that really bodes well for dealing with the Ravens because, you know, if you blow a gap, if you, you know, if you, you take the wrong angle to Lamar Jackson, he's going to run for a 48 yard touchdown and turn the game around. So I, I think they're really good at doing that as a unit. Now, I think Phillip Rivers is such a good matchup for the Bills because he's such a good pre-snap reader of defenses and put the, the Colts in so many good situations that I think, you know, they were able to convert so many third and fives and third and sixes and so many big plays because Philip Rivers was putting them in the right situations. And even in the fourth quarter, when they were running the ball effectively, I think that's Rivers getting a, a pass and a run call and then knowing what to knowing, the right, yeah. right, knowing what to pick at the snap. Um Lamar Jackson can do that, but he is a guy who's in his third year in the NFL. Philip Rivers has been in the NFL since Lamar Jackson was a baby. So, you know, it's going to be tougher for them to do that. So I think it's going to be they can move the ball on the Bills, but it's going to be different from what we saw last week. I think in some Greg Roman, it is, to me, it's almost more about Greg Roman than any of the, mm. I mean, it's about, you know, obviously Lamar Jackson executing and Mark Andrews not dropping the football and whatever, but it's about Greg Roman's in-game adjustments in in the same way that it really was in the Titans game as well. Um, I agree. And, and the lack thereof in past playoff games. All right. Let's take a quick break, and then before we get to the last two games, have a a quick conversation about one Doug Peterson. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. And I have to say, speaking from experience recently, having tried it for the first time in Detroit, it is absolutely delicious. Right now, you can get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. So, Bill, in lieu of a mailbag this week, um, I wanted to ask you a question. First of all, thank you guys, as always, for your questions um, and iTunes reviews. I love them. My mom loves them, except for the mean ones. We don't like those. Um, God, I don't even know where to start with this Peterson thing. Let Let me phrase it this way. Okay. How shocked were you when Doug Peterson was finally fired, and why or why not? I was not shocked. And we talked about this in the weeks before it happened, right? Number one, as a Giants fan, I lived this with Ben McAdoo, where Ben McAdoo benched Eli Manning with the approval of the general manager and ownership, even though they might deny it. Like, you're not, if you're a head coach, you're not benching your starting quarterback, your franchise quarterback, without telling the people who are in charge that you're going to do it. Um, Benched uh, Eli Manning. Eli Manning lost his streak. They started Geno Smith. It went horribly. Uh, And then the week later, ownership realized how upset Giants fans were. And to appease them and make themselves look like the good guys in the situation, they fired uh, Ben McAdoo. 
not to say that McAdoo wasn't going to get fired or he didn't deserve it, but like that that two week span happened. It happened over a longer period of time here, but I think seeing the visceral reaction to what happened in week seventeen and seeing how you know maybe not Jason Kelsey, but people in that locker room felt how. Oh, the public. I mean, they got, the they got murdered. This was I, a topic on our studio shows for like three days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, Eagles fans are going to be mad about anything. Like, if we're being honest, like, do you, well, let's let's live in that for a second before we, because that is definitely the event that kind of like, if not precipitated, it justified it. Whatever. Uh, do you think if they had come out at the beginning of the week and just said, "Hey, we're just going to play Nate Sudfeld. It's a meaningless game," that it, everyone would have been cool with it? I think there would have been 10% of the reaction. Yeah, 10% feels about right. I, I think so much of it was... The handling. The handling. It was a close game. I honestly think so much of it was Al Michaels freaking out on a television. A thousand percent. Also the fact that I think the Giants have a very large fan base. So a ton of people just happen to be invested in the outcome. Yes, for sure. And, and I think that we can talk about that week 17 thing separately. It's a whole other topic that will take another half hour to discuss. But... I think that contributed to this. And then there were two other things. Number one was the report from our Chris Mortensen in week 17 that very specifically framed this as not Carson Wentz is done with the Eagles, not Carson Wentz is upset with the organization, but Carson Wentz's relationship with Doug Peterson has broken down. Like it was very specifically about not not Carson feeling he was treated unfairly by the entire organization that he was didn't want to come back. Very specifically Doug Peterson. I think that was very pointed for a reason. And I think that the last straw seemed like the the conversation with Jeffrey Lurie the day before he got fired where you know yeah, uh, according like to reports yeah, yeah Doug Peterson's response to try and fix the issues there were to move coaches around Whereas Jeffrey Lurie, it seemed like wanted to bring in some new coaches to assist them in the organization. That's been a thing that they've done going back to the Andy Reid days. They had like for the dream team, uh, they had like an all-star crew of coaches, some of which didn't work, but that's a place where they feel like they can invest and get significant return is by making smart hires at those positional spots and in those coordinator spots. And I think that um we saw the reports from Ian Rappaport that Doug Peterson was like sick of being told what to do, like, you know, like Same. a very, uh, it reminded me of when I was a kid and I was upset at my parents for not letting me do what they wanted me to do. And I was, I, I literally was going to play them Tom Petty's, uh, you don't know how it feels to try and express my viewpoint. <laughs> Somebody um, retweeted the report that was like, Doug Peterson is sick of being told what to do. I can't remember who wrote this and just, just wrote big warp tour energy. <laughs> I know it's a you and me. Um, 100%. A thousand for me. Yeah, that's us. Like, um, like, you know, I feel like all those things contributed. And maybe if one of those things hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. But here we are, right? Yes. Um, well, let's just spin it forward briefly. So so the conversation we've had now is not really why this happened or not just why this happened, but, you know, okay, well, who wants this job? Is it a good job? What is Who should you know, be hired. So first, is it a good job? No, it's absolutely not a good job. Um, it's a team that's capped out with a bunch of aging veterans and a question mark at quarterback, setting aside the Game of Thrones-ish of it all. Um, can, I, can I ask you very briefly about yeah. this? Do you think this makes it more likely Carson Wentz is the quarterback next year? Yeah, 100%. Okay. I've seen people say no, and I'm like, how could you possibly say so clearly, um, which actually leads us to the who should coach them thing, because 
we've had this debate on NFL Live. I've said, like, there's the will and the, you know, should. The will or what's going to happen is I think they're going to bring in a coach who's committed to Carson or who likes Carson. What should happen, I think, is that they have a legitimate competition. Um, I mean, you know, maybe that will, maybe there will be some sort of competition. Bill, I absolutely hate um, evaluating coaches. Like, I'll evaluate process. Like, hey, the Texans process is effed, right? But as far as, like, who's going to be a good coach in the NFL, I one thing I've realized is it's really freaking hard to predict. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know who should be their coach. But like what qualities, like what what do you think should be the type of coach that they want? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think there's so much to fix there. Like Jim Schwartz is gone as well. You know, it's not like there's there's it's it's a blank slate in some ways. Well, think about who they've hired, right? Like they've now hired their last three coaches were Andy Reid, who was a coordinator, a lots of offensive minded coordinator, um, who was a first time head coach. They hired Chip Kelly, who was a like, you know, CEO, like top to bottom college coach who took over and, you know, had his three year run where it was very Game of Thrones, actually, now that I think about it. And then Doug Peterson, who was like back to the Andy Reid thing. So I don't think Chip Kelly was the most successful of those three coaches. But given that you have no defensive coordinator, given that you have a team that's in disarray where there's clearly some dissension. Um, you're going to have a very difficult quarterback decision to make with Carson and Jalen Hurts where you know, you're spending a ton of money to keep Carson Wentz in this roster over the next year or two um, if you don't trade him before mar- beginning of March. like I almost wonder if they go back to one of those CEO-style coaches. And then I, I wonder how much of this is like, like, are we assuming that Howie Roseman's going to have the same level of say over personnel that he had previously? That's a great question. Did you see the um some there was like a report that like Howie Roseman actually wanted Justin Jefferson all along and I was like, oh, let the games begin. I, I like let I, the games begin. You know how like what is it? Um I can't think of the word, like the thing. When you bury something under the ground and don't open it up for 25 years afterwards. Oh, um, like a time time, ball, capsule. time, time capsule. capsule, yeah. Yeah. I feel like every GM should have to put how they feel about like the first round <laughs> in a capsule. I mean, you can't open it up for 10 years. And after 10 years, you get to open it and see what they actually thought at the time. I did one of those when I was like 10. It was like, do not open until you're 18. And I opened it when I was 15. <laughs> and it was like, you know, do you have a boyfriend? Like it was so uh, stupid. I was just like, man, 10 year old me has sucked. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. <laughs> and that's, why, that's why you're the bad girl of NFL Live. I am the bad girl of NFL Live. Let's take a quick break and then get to the last two games. So, Bill, it seems like the only appropriate way to discuss Brown's Chiefs is to use the verbiage that one Chase Claypool, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver, predicted or used in his game prediction and ask you this. Are the Browns going to get clapped? I feel like as an extremely white person, I'm not allowed to use the word clapped in any way, shape, or form without having at least someone punch me in the face. <sighs> um, I, I'm i of two minds. Like I keep going back and forth. Like Really? Yes, in terms of their Noise. overall performance. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I, I feel like I have the insight on how you feel about this game. Well, I I mean, I think I think the defense is going to get 
I I feel comfortable saying clap because I can't think of a better way to describe the Chiefs offense versus the Browns defense. Yes. Probably. So the question to me is, can the Browns keep up? Probably not. But but a case can be made. A case can be made because I would say, number one, if I was going to make a case for the Browns winning this game, let's start. They run the ball well. We can agree they are a great running team, especially with Nick Chubb around, who is around and looks great. The Chiefs are the league's 31st ranked run defense. And a lot of teams either get behind too quickly or can't exploit that. And there is a scenario in this game where the Ravens or the Ravens, the Browns, the most insulting thing I could say to a Browns fan. I'm sorry. (laughs) The Browns get an early lead and have the running game to keep Patrick Mahomes off the field. I don't think they can stop Patrick Mahomes, but I think if he's on the sidelines, that's their only hope of doing so. So old school of you. Uh, well, I mean, it worked last what week. This? Am, I Larith? Am I podcasting with Man 101? Get up. Get up 28 nothing early. And I think they're going to be okay. I, I, I think they can run the ball effectively. And I think that they can't stop the Chiefs on offense. But they're going to have Miles Garrett versus Mike Remmers in this game. Yeah. And Patrick Mahomes is pretty magical and can escape just about anything. Miles Garrett could have like a force that game here. Like he could be an absolute game-changing performer in this matchup. And that could be the difference. I know I'm talking about a team that didn't sack Ben Roethlisberger once in like 68 pass attempts last week. I'm about to say that. But it's, it's the exact opposite quarterback, right? Like get into it. Well, yeah, yeah, but that makes me think actually that um Andy Reid's gonna get that ball coming hot out of Mahomes' hand. Because we've seen so the, the fascinating thing about the Chiefs offense is we've seen like three thousand iterations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, including one where Patrick Mahomes plays by the receiver, you know? Like uh <laughs> like I I like the Browns' best hope on defense is first name Miles, last name Garrett. Um, because that secondary is rough. Secondary is rough, and I think on top of that, the linebackers in coverage. Woof woof. Oh boy, like Travis Kelsey. Is going to eat in this game. Oh I, that's God. like, like you know, he is the probably the leader to have the most receiving yards of any player uh, this weekend. Thirtieth, the Browns were this year in fantasy PPR points per game allowed. Browns, you're getting DFS advice embedded deep in the Mina Kime show. Um, yeah. So just put a, you know a pin in that, or assume that they're gonna get. I'm not gonna say clapped again, demolished. Well, can I can I throw something out there? Okay. Very quickly. I'm nervous. We talked about this a little bit before a couple weeks ago when the Falcons played the Chiefs. I don't think the Falcons gave everyone a blueprint for how to stop the Chiefs. But what the Falcons did in that game worked, which was oh, yes, yeah. they crowded the line, set up you know five, six-man rushes, and then dropped off innocent pressures pretty much every single snap. They know the, the Chiefs were not going to run the ball, and they were going to basically drop, rush four, drop two into the lanes to take away, you know, drags and and quick game, and then hope that their cornerbacks were going to hold up in coverage. And I don't know, the Browns, the Falcons have better defensive backs than the Cleveland Browns do, but they don't have great defensive backs by any means. And they, for the vast majority of that game, stopped the Chiefs or at least slowed them down. And I think that you can approach it that way. I wouldn't be surprised if the Browns just tried to play too high the entire game and just dared the Chiefs to right. kick the goals and try to win games that way. Like, I think the Browns are pretty smart. Yeah. So, I don't think it's a sneaky bad matchup for Kansas for Mahomes in particular. You think? Yeah, but I mean, like uh, you know, the 
Falcons defense as bad as they were, their pass rush was actually every now and then would kind of go off weirdly they're fast too. And they had a lot of speed and youth, but yeah, I see what you, I, I mean. I don't think they're going to win to be clear. No, but. but you're right. Like the best case scenario for Cleveland is that, you know, the chiefs do run the ball a lot and that they do get sort of that week one formula that um, Mahomes used against Houston, for example, right? Yes. So I watched earlier this week, I watched the Giants-Packers game from 2011 when the Packers were 15-1 and and they lost their opening playoff game as huge favorites at home to a Giants team that had been outscored during the regular season, just like the Cleveland Browns were. In that game, the Packers dropped, I think, nine passes. Um, They lost three fumbles. They, they fumbled three times, lost all of them to the Giants. The Giants hit a Hail Mary at halftime and won the game comfortably. Like, I don't think the Browns need to have all of that happen to win this game. But you need, like, at least one of those things. I would feel a lot better if Olivier Vernon was still on this team. If it wasn't yeah. just Miles Garrett that were, we, this you know. This line is bad, though. Like, it's, I know. It's, it's, it's straight up bad. Uh, well, I mean, how bad do you think they are? I think they're like bottom 12 in the NFL bad. Wow. Like I, I would say, and by the way, the Cleveland offensive line in that Steelers game. Oh boy. So they're getting back. What's the status of Conklin? Do you know? I think he's questionable with a hamstring. Okay. And then Teller will play. And- Teller's going to play. He looked awesome. Jack Conklin's day to day. I think it's going to be the, the whole shebang. I think it's going to be the whole line. And I mean, Chiefs are great. But they are not a great run defense. No, I and um, I think also like there's a lot of things that the Browns can do to neutralize the Chiefs' pass rush as well. Not just running the football, um, but I think they match up well with them in their quick passing game as well, which you saw a lot mm-hmm. of against Pittsburgh. Frankly, uh, like oh, yeah. I feel like everybody the Pittsburgh game was so insane that the bad play or the the way in which the Pittsburgh defense kind of got like outshone, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like people didn't really notice that um, the Browns like had success with them both on the ground and through the air. Like I, so I, you know, if, if they can do that to Pittsburgh, it strikes me as very plausible that they can do it to a Kansas city defense. That's worse. If the Browns win this bad game. linebackers, by the way. Yes, I agree. If the Browns win this game, what is the over-under for the number of carries Nick Chubb will have? Oh, that's good. I would say 26 and a half. Like, it's, he's going to get well, the ball a lot. There too. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think the Chiefs are going to win, to be clear. Yeah, you're, you're you're really good at, like, making me walk, you know. I'm just saying it's plausible. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Like, I, I think it'll be a closer game than people expect, and then Travis Kelsey will have, like, you know, like five third down conversions in the second half and a touchdown. And right. The and then Mahomes will go into takeover yes. mode. Do, just back to the Browns, though. If you're the Chiefs defense, how do you approach this matchup? Mm-hmm. I think you still have to stop the run. Like, I think the Browns have Jarvis Landry, who was an excellent slot receiver. The Chiefs aren't going to cover him with a linebacker, which is a plus for <laughs> their defense. Like, I think... You load up the box and you try to take away the screen to try and take away, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that the Browns do well. I think you have to be very aggressive. I think you have to be smart about play action. Like, I think you have to be 
We have Fair to be mindful point. of Baker Mayfield rolling out, and I'm a, like, I, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna make Baker win this game. Yeah, like I'm gonna I'm gonna make Baker hit, you know, 25, 30 yard throws to win this game. And if he does, great, like you did it. But I think in the worst case, if Baker does that, then you're just in a shootout with Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield, and I think Patrick Mahomes wins that shootout. That's good. That's well put. Yeah, I think if you sell out versus the run and then make a concentrated effort to take out Landry. Um, I'm like, if you take, if you stop all the good players, uh, then you're right. Then it becomes the, the margin of error, the likelihood that Mayfield would make a mistake, a costly error, and that Mahomes gets the ball back is probably your best bet. I have a suggestion for making this game a little juicier, by the way. What is? What if the winner of this game, the winning quarterback of this game got the loser's commercials? Next <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Oh, the one area where Baker Mayfield is undoubtedly superior. If, we're, mm-hmm. if you want to talk matchups, I mean, but then he matches up well with everyone in the NFL, honestly. I mean, the man's acting prowess, good God. Phenomenal. It's, it's, it's impressive. He's legitimately good. He's like, like Peyton level good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to, you know, get ahead of myself, but... He's he's an excellent actor. Um, I and I I've joked about this on the internet, but I, I actually do think he's really good at selling play fakes. I've always thought that about Mayfield, even like dating back to the college days. Like he would even he, he like really commits to the bit, and so we should have seen this coming, candidly. Um, okay, two guys who are both very old. <laughs> Did you see the Tom Brady Photoshop? Yeah, and. So, okay, for those who don't aren't extremely online, uh, Tom Brady's team, because we we know he's not Photoshopping, did a Photoshop of him and uh, Drew Brees, but he made them both look old, except he made Drew Brees look much worse. Like mm-hmm. Tom Brady made Drew Brees look like an elderly professor and himself look like a rugged captain of a ship. Um, Tom, Tom, Brady, Tom Brady's people made him look like the most interesting man of the world. <laughs> Poor Brees. He like... He made him bald, and mm-hmm. he, he looks very nebbish uh, comparatively. It's classic Brady. Classic Brady. Um, Just picking up every edge he can get. This game rules. I'm excited for it. I'm, uh, I don't think, also, I don't think there's like, I guess like Bucks offense versus Saints defense is the superior side, but I think both sides are interesting in this one. Let's start there, though. Let's start with the Bucks offense because um, – you know, they've been rolling over the last few weeks. And mm-hmm. against Washington, there were some things that surprised me, Bill, and that there were some things that didn't. Like, we've seen them figure out the things that they're good at, I guess, mm-hmm. as the season has gone on consistently. I mean, the amount of play action and the success they had in the Washington game, that's a trend. That's it, it, it's a trend line that's been going up over the course of the season, targeting the tight ends, finally getting Cameron Brayton involved. By the way, in this game in particular, I wouldn't be surprised if the tight ends are relevant against the Saints defense. Mm-hmm. But the thing that perhaps surprised me the most was how good Brady was throwing pressured um, because he's been god awful. And I've harped on this on my podcast, throwing pressured. It, it drives me crazy when on the broadcast, like Brady can't throw deep has become such a straw man. Mm-hmm. It's like no one's saying that. But what I have said, and a lot of people have noticed, is that well, he struggles with pressure, but he did not struggle in this Washington game, in part because uh the Bucks left tackle Donovan Smith did an excellent job against Chase Young. But even when you know Deron Payne got in his face a bunch, 
um, which is relevant to this matchup. Put a pin in that. But even when you know the pocket was closing on him, he delivered some beautiful balls. Yeah. I mean, you know, and he had a lot of open receivers and he was finding those guys. And I I think looking back at this last Saints game, which was the 38-3 game where the Saints were dominant from start to finish, they pressured Brady 46% of the time, which he had never been. No other game this year did the opposing team top 25% against Brady. So that's a huge outlier. Like it didn't wasn't the case in the first Saints game, although they did get a pick six in that game. Um, you know, it, it it's sort of we've made that assumption that like, you know, Brady's run in the second half was, you know, Brady playing better, but also just they had a pretty weak schedule over the final five weeks of the year. Um is it that crazy to think that Brady would get better in this scheme as the year goes on? Like he is adjusting, he is, you know, dealing with something new. And I think the you know, the offensive line is playing well. I think that um, he is certainly more comfortable. And, you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think he was better than I expected against that defense last week, which is a legitimately great Washington defense. And, you know, I there are a couple of reasons why he might struggle in this game, but I don't think like, I just don't think it's going to be the blowout it was last time. Well, let's talk about that offensive line because – you're right. They're very good. And they did a great job last week, especially the tackles were excellent. But after they lost their so, so Brady was sacked three times by Washington mm-hmm. and two of those sacks were given up by the guard who replaced Alex Kappa after he fractured his ankle. Who was Ted Larson? Yes. Who is playing guard? And do you see that being like a pivotal factor in this game? OK, let me. <laughs> Let me preface this by saying that uh, Bruce Arians is a known liar and not someone to take seriously when it comes to talking to the media. But he said this week that his starting guard for this game was going to be Aaron Stinney, uh, who has 46, oh. number one, has 46 career offensive snaps. Number two, sounds like the name of the country singer you've never heard of who sings during halftime at the Cowboys game on Thanksgiving. Or the country singer you've never heard of who on the first Bachelorette one-on-one, mm-hmm. they have to dance to awkwardly yes, in yes. a private concert. Yes. And now Aaron Stinney. And then the Bachelor's like, oh yeah, Aaron Stinney. And they pretend oh, like they, they know who they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So so the, the Saints, they didn't have Trey Hendrickson. They did not. So key player, Mina Khan's favorite. Um, I think that's, that's a huge issue for this game. 100%. And I think that the Saints... We know they have a good enough front four that they can get home with that blitzing. Very good. And if that happens, like I know Brady's been better and was better against the pressure last week. Like there's a chance that maybe he just overcomes it and it's just awesome. Like that's always within Tom Brady's range of outcomes. But Tom Brady heading into that game after the end of the regular season was fifth in QBR in the NFL on with not pressured and tied with Nick Mullins for 31st when pressured. Like if they get a 40% pressure rate in this game, it's game over. Like that's I don't need to know anything else. Like the, the box are going to lose if that happens. Well, so if you're aside from, you know, counting on your offensive linemen and perhaps giving them some help, what can, and, and using play action, is there anything else that Bruce Arians and 
uh, Byron Leftwich can do to ensure Tom Brady stays upright against this very good Saints pass rush? Well, there's two things. Number one, you could use more quick game, but they oh, are quick allergic. game. They're allergic to that. This economy. I, I I don't want to bring up the Seahawks again. I'm trying my hardest to not discuss that topic. Shut your mouth. But number two is that Ronald Jones did not play last week and was questionable with a quad injury. And not sure he's going to play this week. Not that Ronald Jones is like, you know, a superstar running back, but clearly he's their preferred runner between the tackles. And one way to slide on a pass rush and to keep the other opposing team's offense off the field is to run the ball. And it wouldn't shock me if the Bucks tried to do that early in this game to avoid getting out to a massive deficit. Leonard Fournette had a good game against Washington. Shut up the haters. He was totally fine. But <laughs> my, 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 I've slandered him all year, so I ha- I gotta I gotta say those words. I, I've seen four years with Leonard Fournette now. Like I don't. You're not going to talk me into that based on one like <laughs> Saints like, run defense minus game. Very good. I have one more fact about the Bucks offense. Okay. This is the first time in NFL history that a team is starting two guards from Hobart and James Madison. <laughs> Which one's from Hobart? Ali Marpet is from Hobart. Oh, I knew that. Shoot. Aaron Stinney. Because every time I see it, I'm like, what? Aaron Stinney, the pride of JMU, James Madison University. Marpet's so good. Um, He was so good in the Washington game, too. I mean, the whole line was really good. They're awesome. Okay. Uh, The Saints line is also very good. And But. but, Are they missing someone? They stunk last week. They were bad. Like, the the Bears really gave them problems. they really did. Robert Quinn was eaten. Yeah, like, like Bears fans who wanted to literally like not let him on the plane home uh, for most games this year were like actually impressed with how he yeah, played. Yeah, it, it, it was confusing. Um, and, you know, I, I, that's fair. But I, I'll add the Bucks pass rush. Mina, breaking news. Uh-oh. Am I going to be upset by this? No, you're going to be happy. Okay. What do you think it is? Um, Very happy. What would, what would it be? I would never be happy about a fire, but I wouldn't, it's, I would not be very happy about a firing. Oh my God. It is what I thought it would be. <laughs> wow. Okay. We should. Okay. I'm going to, we're going to talk about this and I'm going to scrap dinks and dunks. We're going to do this instead of dinks and dunks. The Seahawks. I'm not, I'm not very happy about this, but the Seahawks parted ways with Brian Schottenheimer. Okay. Um, Bill and I are going to talk about that after we finish this game. All right. Wow. I was just so excited to have an actual breaking news moment that would be relevant. I know, you said breaking news like um Okay, I've know. seen I've seen like, the uh, what's news. his name? John King. I've seen the breaking news tickers all year on NFL Network that have been like breaking news, the 13 and 1 Steelers have clinched a playoff spot. This uh, is actual news, Dan. No, no one does speaking of again, John King, CNN, I'm so triggered by key race alert. And then it's <laughs> literally not an it's not key, it's not about a race, and it's not really an alert, so the news have lied to me. With it's the, very, uh, very Seinfeldian of you. Oh, uh, <laughs> it really is. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a second because it's a, it's a big okay. conversation. Um, okay, we talk about the Saints' offensive line. They yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so the Bucks. Sorry, I'm so I'm so derailed by this right now. I'm just like, oh, my head's spinning. So the the um, Bucks pass rush, which was so hot last year and hot at the beginning of the season, sort of tailed off as the year went on, thus exposing that this is a team that has issues in coverage, right? Mm-hmm. And holes that can be exploited. Now, they didn't have Devin White last week, which is he's by far to me their best blitzer, mm-hmm. but. The last time these teams played, um, 
the Bucks did something very infuriating, which is they played a, a significant amount of zone defense and Drew Brees just diced them apart happily. So do you think Todd Bowles would be best served by just sending the house or, you know, at least playing more man than he did in the last two matchups? Yes. I think you would be better served because it's what they do best and it's like what their core philosophy is. And I think that if it's not clearly better for you to do something that's not your core philosophy, you should kind of stick with it. But that was with a less effective Michael Thomas, I think. Michael Thomas is probably healthier than he was in that first matchup and it didn't matter. I mean, how many freaking Saints caught passes in this game? (laughs) Six, nine, What's his name? 12? Dante Harris was like on fire. He was their fire. best receiver last week. On fire. He looked really good. 12 different Saints caught passes in the last time these I, I really owe degrees a lot of apologies. For- and three Saints through Jameis Winston even completed one of them. Um, here's what I would say. I was surprised last week because the Bears had two sort of like flickering lights in their defense or two like bright lights that Drew Brees should have been targeting at every single pass. One of them was Bantai Teo, who I did not know was on the Bears until the game started. Um, and the second was the Bears like fourth string cornerback who played a bunch of um, I don't know. Whose I'm name not, was? I'm pretend like I do. Uh, was it Kindle Vildor? That sounds incredibly made up. Kindle Vildor, um, not a Game of Thrones character, but in fact, a Bears cornerback. Um, and I kind of figured, okay, every single snap, we're going at those dudes. And they did go at them a fair amount, but it wasn't like the sort of like, you know, every single time until they make some changes that I was expecting. And maybe that was the pass rush getting on breeze. Maybe it was just the fact that their guys aren't a hundred percent yet, but um, they didn't go at those guys. And I think with the bucks, like you generally don't want to throw it Carlton Davis. I know that the chiefs had a ton of success doing it, but Carlton Davis is not a, you know, Jalen Ramsey level shutdown corner, but no. much rather go at Jamel Dean, much rather go at Sean Murphy bunting. Yes. Much rather go at the linebackers in coverage. And so I wonder, like, if you're the Saints, like, are you just going to focus your game plan on going after those guys? Or, like, like, like and I think that, that sort of determines, you know, whether you want them to play zone or play man. Because if they're going to play man, yeah. and you think you have guys who can beat Dean and Murphy Bunting in man coverage, well, then you should hope they play man. But if not, then I think you're probably hoping they play zone and you're just going to attack, you know, wherever the weak spots are in the zone. And we know Drew Brees can do that. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned the weird distribution of targets because – the Saints are so unpredictable in the way that you're describing. Like, like you, you, they're not the kind of team where you can say, okay, well, if Carlton Davis takes out Michael Thomas or whatever, then who's really left? It doesn't freaking matter. Mm-hmm. It never matters with this team. You know, whether it's a Traquan Smith or a Deontay Harris or a completely fictional human being who, you know, I, I, I just... Little Jordan Humphrey. Or Little Jordan Humphrey. Um or, you know, I, I think they're going to – this to me feels like a game where Kamara could get a lot of targets as a receiver as well. Um, that's a mismatch that I could see the Saints exploiting. And, and I think it's also a mismatch that comes up very frequently if you blitz. Like if you blitz a ton, you're going to oh, have yeah, to – That'll be their response. Play. That always is their response 100%. if you blitz a ton. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think both offenses have – very specific ways and abilities to attack both defenses. I wouldn't be surprised if this is pretty high scoring. Yes. Can I ask you a question that I would not expect to have asked before the season? <laughs> oh, let me try to guess what the question is. Okay, please. Um, it's a lot more. Is quarterback going to kneel for the national anthem? No. 
It's not the question. What's the question? The question is, are you concerned about Will Lutz? Oh my God. Yes. That's such a good point. It's I am only, concerned. It's only been like nine kicks though. I know, but it, it, when it goes, it goes. <laughs> and it, it feels like it's gone, right? Like When Justin Tucker missed that 52-yarder, did a chill pass through your body the way it did through mine? I was like trying to find excuses so I could tell my family why he missed the kick. <laughs> I don't have a family. So <sighs> that's what I was stressed about. But like there are certain guys, and I would say Justin Tucker and Will Lutz were the only two for me. Like I don't think Jason Myers even belongs in this group, even though he's rude. Rude. Okay. By the way, of the can, we, can we stop saying people are perfect all year when they miss four extra points? That counts. Um, on our broadcast, I forbade anyone from saying that about Justin Tucker. I mean, not not because he's he hasn't. Uh, oh, I, I'm sorry. You you were saying because Justin Tucker. I'm I, I or pardon me, Jason Myers. I thought you said. I thought you were gonna say. Can we stop saying people are perfect before they make the kick because it curses them? Um, yes, the mixed extra points do count. They absolutely count. Okay. I so never felt imperfect. Justin Tucker and Will Lutz were like automatic for me. Like anything within 60 yards, I assume they're making it. Will Lutz has now missed three, four field goals in the last six weeks. I mean, I'm concerned. Like an, an extra point. It was one extra point as well. Like I would imagine that the vast majority of the last five years, if this game came down to a field goal, I would much rather have the Saints kicker than the Bucks kicker if I was rooting for one of these teams. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Wow. And like when I think about like horrific ways the Saints could lose this game as they seem to lose playoff games, that kind of seems like the first way it would come to mind. No. Why would you say that? So do you have the Bucks? I right. The Saints are favorite, yes. Yeah. I picked the Saints to win the Super Bowl in my playoff column. So I feel like I have to pick the Saints, but I'm I'm almost more worried about them playing the Bucks than I am about them playing the Packers. Wow. Even though they beat the Bucks 38-3 last time, which sounds contradictory, but this is a season where like a lot of the games from the regular season I feel like don't matter anymore. I think that's fair. Um who do you have? In this particular game? Yes. I'm leaning Saints as well, but if I have to pick one upset, this will be it. Okay. Like if I, I come on that table where they're like, who are you picking as an upset? Mm-hmm. I think I would go Ravens for my my one upset if I had oh, to what's pick. The, what, yeah, what's the... Uh, what's the old line, line there? Um, the Ravens line is two. So that is the... Uh, the Closest, yeah. Rams are six and a half. Ravens are two. Browns are ten. And, ten. The, Buc- and the Bucks are three. Wow, the Browns disrespect. Ten. That seems about right. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. And then afterwards, let's talk about the breaking news. ESPN Films has teamed up with Overthrow New York for a free and virtual class centered around its film, Black Feet Boxing, Not Invisible. The film, available to watch on ESPN Plus, is about fighting for respect, identity, and acknowledgement. The class will be taught by renowned boxers Ronica Jeffrey, Kaylee Rias, and Ayana Okimosh. Stay tuned after the class for a panel discussion moderated by Jen Lada with special guest Clarissa Shields. Sign up at overthrownyc.com slash blackfeet. So, Bill, usually I do five questions and one of 
the questions I was already going to ask you was about Brian Schottenheimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was, can you name a f- non-sports fact about Tampa uh, where the Super Bowl is taking place? Because I had a really good fact, which I'm just going to tell you now, yes. uh, which is that Outback Steakhouse is based there. Boy, can I, I told you about my Outback Steakhouse experience yes, that's in Australia. Why, that's, yeah, I listened to you. That's why I was going <laughs> to. Um, so here, I'm going to read Adam Schefter's tweet because I feel like it's important. Seahawks fired OC Brian Schottenheimer. His offense set a number of Seahawks records, but after a meeting last night, it was evident there were philosophical differences between Schottenheimer and head coach Pete Carroll. Mm-hmm. They decided a parting was in the best interests of both sides. That's not how firings work. Um, yeah, that's how Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin broke up. Like a, so, a conscious uncoupling? Yeah, right? that's exactly it. So I'm going to start, before we get to like the why and the going forward and, and whatnot, let me ask you this. How much do you think Brian Schottenheimer was to blame for the devolution of the Seahawks offense over the second half of the season, but then obviously particularly in the playoff game? I'm sorry. Um, Stephen Ruiz, our friend and guest on the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, posted the I think you should leave hot dog meme. We're all trying to find the guy who did this with Russell Wilson in the hot dog suit. <laughs> 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 um, well, that's relevant to this discussion, yes, and I, I hate him for that. But Do I think Schottenheimer is to blame? I I said how much. How Not much? It, I don't believe in a binary world. Sure. So it's just all a bit nuanced here. I, I think he is partly to blame. And I think that clearly when he was brought in, this was not the scheme he was supposed to run. Like they did not bring him in to run a downfield passing attack. Like there is that part of the game for sure, but they were not letting Russ cook when he first got there. Um, they did not have answers as the year went on. And I think part of that is Tyler Lockett not being 100% probably. I think some of it is the offensive line playing really well in the first half and not yeah. quite as well in the second Underrated half. thing that you just said, but continue. Very, very much for sure. I think that they were, you know, they were more predictable. I think they were not as lucky in the red zone. They were not as lucky on fourth down. They wouldn't have as many drives to take advantage because they weren't as effective in those situations. But like what this came down to is, you know, there was the whole conversation we saw yesterday about Pete Carroll saying, listen, we have to adjust. We have to be more effective running the football because we don't want to be throwing into cover two or in, into two deep schemes, you know, all season. And I think that not having a solution for that is part of the problem. And I think Brian Schottenheimer is to blame for that. But part of that is Russell Wilson's fault because as our friend Nate Tice brought up, I believe it was Nate Tice, like Russell Wilson's strength is not quick game. Like yeah. they they have not had a quick game for the entirety of the time he's there. And part of that is his height. Part of that is it's just not his style. Part of it is that he is so special at extending plays and improvising and making things happen. Like he did on that long touchdown pass DK Metcalf in the game last week. But like it's sort of like you know whack a mole almost, where it's like okay, if you're gonna throw deep a ton like the Seahawks did, you're gonna see too high. And if you can run the football well, you're gonna see teams rotating down after the snap and filling the box. And so the way to attack those two high defenses is quick, is quick game, getting the ball immediately, you know, quick slants, West coast stuff, like, like doing what you can to put the ball in your receiver's hands before a pass rush can get home. And before, you know, the, those two high safeties can take away your, your big plays downfield. And that's not Russell Wilson's strengths. And I think there's a fair question to be asked about whether a better offensive coordinator who has more 
comfort working with quick game can do a better job of teaching Russell Wilson that and having that be a more functional part of the Seahawks offense. But um, I don't think that is necessarily strictly the offensive coordinator's job. Yeah. Well, okay. There's a lot to unpack there because I agree with you. I agree with Nate about sort of that not being Russell Wilson's strength. Um, But like, he's not the first short quarterback in the history of football to play covered two. It's hundred percent true. It's very fair. So, but, but by that same token, he's not Drew Brees, right? Mm-hmm. Who is another short quarterback who does have a very good quick game is very, also is very good at those um, types of routes you described. Sure. So in terms of like, how can this be fixed? You know, to me, like one thing that jumps out very obviously has nothing to do with coaching, and that's they need to fix the inside of the offensive line. One thousand percent, which has been an issue forever. And and Damian Lewis, the right guard, the rookie guard, started really good, tailed off a bit as the season went on. One thinks he would be better, but to me, like if I'm the Seahawks, I'm thinking, where do I allocate capital or focus my attention going forward? It's the left guard and center position that inside of that offensive line. I don't. The problem is like. Do they really have the resources to do that? They don't have a ton of cap space. They have, like, 15 million heading into next year. They have to re-sign um, Shaq Griffin, who, you know, is going to be expensive. They have to give uh, Jamal Adams a new contract. Like, There's some contracts. That I've looked at their – I don't have it in front of me. But they, they have, a, they have some work they can do. Yeah. But, no, they don't have a ton of space. But, like, you know, if you're going to make one signing, to me, it's a center or a guard. But the, uh, they haven't – done that like almost the last time they oh, really I know we're talking about what they should do now. right I mean they they tried to sign BJ Finney this year and BJ Finney never well, even really made it onto the active roster they so. they traded him like they they gave Ethan Poachers a job and then got rid of not him. like he went on to excel <laughs> that's fair <laughs> like, like I guess like you know like like do you think I mean heck, you signed think- the right tackle Brandon Shell and he was decent Bill he was decent. like yeah so but do you think that is something they see as something they have to fix I have no idea. I mean, what do you, not what do you believe as a Seahawks fan? I don't I, I think as a Seahawks fan, they're probably, well, I think we're going to learn a lot from who they hire as the offensive coordinator in terms of like the impact or the influence of Pete Carroll on the offense. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, let me ask you a question actually, because I think that may inform who they, who I think they're going to pick. Do you think they fired Brian Schottenheimer because he wasn't an effective enough passing offensive coordinator or do you think they fired Brian Scheinheimer because he wanted to pass the ball more than Pete Carroll wanted to pass the ball? I think both, candidly. I mean, so Pete Carroll, after the playoff game, like the week after in his press conference, people were roasting him because he said that they have to run the ball more. But he also said, we want to run the ball more efficiently and have a short passing game, right? Okay. The reason I think people were, or at least I was roasting him, is because I think Pete Carroll's solution to any question you could ask him about any topic is running the ball. More. Sure. But Pete Carroll's the head coach, and as the season went on, they didn't run the ball that much more. And they were effective running the football when they did. Not against the Rams. <laughs> no, no. They were not effective doing anything against the Rams. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they, they were second in EPA. I, mean, I think they fired Ron Schottenheimer because they got humiliated on a national stage. I don't think, Bill, I'll be candid. Like I, if the Seahawks had won that game, I think Brian Schottenheimer still has a job, even with the offense struggling down the stretch. Yeah, I, I think that was the kind of loss where you have to do something because the offense was so bad. So, so bad. Um, so I think, like I said, I think it's... 
in terms of like the blame pie for the season and and whatnot, I think everyone has a hand in it. I think it's a mixture of Wilson, the offensive line, Schottenheimer, and Carroll. And like, I don't really think, you know, think firing Brian Schottenheimer solves the other issues. Um, but like, there's this perception of this offense, like it hasn't been amongst the most efficient in football every single year. Russell Wilson has been quarterback for the team. Mm-hmm. So I have some capacity, given his like past success, I have some belief that they can figure it out. Whether it's, you know, I it's not just about like a Hail Mary to save the offensive line. Like he's a very good quarterback. I know that... They struggled again, and they also played like good defenses primarily down the stretch. But like past precedent tells me that it's more likely than not that he'll return to form in some way. Mm-hmm. So, who who do I want to hire? <laughs> either who or like what kind of court? What kind of coach would you like to hire? Yeah, I think you would hope someone who can. So I think Brian Schottenheimer doesn't get enough credit for like he does a lot of the things that people wanted in terms of like, you know, pre-snap motion and like whatever. But I still think that the Seahawks offense looked comparatively stale to some of the stuff you're seeing around the NFL. So I actually would be it'd be interesting to me if it was someone who at least erred on the side of innovation and trying stuff. What about. Uh, 49ers passing game coordinator, Mike LaFleur. So there's a lot of whispers that he might be going with Sala hmm. to his next destination, but I would love that. <laughs> um, Do you want like... Hmm. I feel like I'm on like Millionaire Matchmaker and you're asking me about like my millionaire husband or something. If there was one trait you would want from an offensive coordinator, would it, it would be like innovation? Yes. Okay. Yes. Who would that even be, though? I don't know. I'm not good at hiring co- coordinators. Ab- absolutely not. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I, I think that. I mean, I, let me ask you this, Bill. Do you think this was the wrong decision? I don't know. I mean, I, I agree as to why I think it happened. Yeah. But there's not like the obvious candidate that comes to mind for me where I'm just like, oh man, if they get that guy. Do you usually feel that way though? Not always. I never feel that way. I I would say closer to never than than always. But again, this is one of the best offenses in football. Like even with that second half slide, like I think think if they ran it back with Schottenheimer and just focused on improving the passing efficiency and improve the offensive line, interior of the offensive line, I think they would be you a top. you feel top. like that there's no reaction to the second half of the season? I think it's very emotional. Right. Yeah. And that, that, that might be good. It might be the right decision. Well, I think, yeah, for sure. I think, I'll just say this too. I've heard a lot of whispers of over the second half of the season, shall we say, competing ideas amongst some of the principal actors. So I, I generally think people moving in lockstep is good. So okay. can I throw a name out there okay. for for you to react? This is gonna be okay. Don't troll me. I'm sensitive. Seahawks offensive coordinator Adam Gase. Last question. Lenny wants to know why do you suck? 